describes acts of extreme violence in graphic detail and may include discussions about demonology and the occult, topics that caused widespread panic during the 1980s. This content may not be suitable for children under the age of 50. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Grog Talk. I'm James. Where are we from today, Dan? Oh, really? We're from there. Well, that's very good. What are we going to talk about? Okay. Obviously not. Not Dan. I was going with someone a little cheaper, one who doesn't complain as much. This is Jack. Actually, Dan and I are on a little break, getting ready for GrogCon 22, which is coming up very shortly. So today, uh, we're going to have, I'm going to be interviewing Bill Barton, who wrote So You Want to Be a Rockstar, among other things. Um, Hopefully, the audio issues I had have been somewhat resolved, but as usual, the gremlins did affect us. Uh, I hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you real soon. So again, with that, here is Bill Barton. All right. Well, I'm so glad uh, to now be speaking to uh, Bill Barton. And Bill Barton is the author of So You Want to Be a Rockstar. And for those who have been keeping track of our shenanigans here at Grog Talk, here is the copy that Rob Ritchie, our Tim Cask, sent to me as a gift. And I'm like, oh, we have to run it. So we're running at this year's GrogCon. And Rob uh, decided he was going to reach out to Bill. And Bill was gracious enough to pick up the phone and talk to him for a while. And, and now he's on the phone with me. So, Bill, welcome to GrogCon. Excellent, excellent. So, so we chatted a little bit before we started. So maybe you could briefly tell us uh, how you got into um, role-playing games. No, um, I was a board gamer almost from the time I could read, uh, and um, my sister and I and our aunt, uh, we would play different board games, the old ones like Sorry and Monopoly, Risk, those things. Uh, I eventually um, got into other board games, uh, more extensive ones. Um, there was a shop here in Indianapolis. It may still be here. I, I haven't uh, checked in years, but it was called The Boardroom. And I'd go there, and I'd get, uh, you know, we'd get some of the old SPI or Avalon Hill games, and a friend of mine and I would play those together. Um, after a while, we heard about a gaming uh, club that was being held at one of the community centers. So we decided we'd go check it out one day. And um, got there, and it was mostly, there were a couple rooms, 
there was one group playing a role-playing game in one room, and the other room people were doing board games. So we took a board game and we, you know, started playing there. But after a while, we got to be curious, thinking, well, you know, we can do the board game anywhere. Uh, let's check out this role-playing thing, see what, what, what that's all about. So uh, we looked in, and they were playing uh, the game Traveler. Okay. Uh, which is, you know, you might remember the old type oh, yeah. game. Sure. And um, we just kind of watched one time and then asked if we could sit in next time. So uh, they helped us, you know, with the role of some characters. And the next time we played, uh, my friend and I joined in and played with them. So we, uh, we started doing that for a while, and... Um, and after a while, I kind of got to thinking, you know, you know, I think I could do this. I think I could run run one of these games. So by then, I bought all the books that were available, and you know, started as a little boxed edition. Started out with, and so uh, I took one of the uh, one of the preset adventures. It was uh, I don't remember the name of it. it was some kind of a space station or mm-hmm. a station on. Like a planetary station. Yeah, uh, in, I, in the Arctic or something. Right. I, I and remember, so, uh, yeah. Go ahead. So I kind of put that together, but I kind of thought that they were, it was a little bit short. So I, you know, created some extra characters for it: a uh, submarine captain and uh, some other NPCs. I kind of extended it a bit, and so everyone seemed to enjoy it. So I started doing that, at, you know, various other the written adventures, and I kind of elaborated on them, and finally I did a campaign that I wrote myself that kind of took them on a quest across the various solar systems. Um, and uh, um, there was a company called... Oh, yeah, um, F- F- F-A-S-A? Yeah, FASA. Yeah, that yep. was it. Sorry, the, the memory's going a little bit here. No, it's we're all it's all happening. No problem. But at all. Uh, I, I, I by then I was I was writing reviews for Space Gamer magazine, and um, I'd uh, written a review and and it wasn't completely favorable. One of their products, <laughs> so they kind of contacted me and we talked. And then they uh, went ahead and they started they started putting out new uh, products that were much better. I thought. And so we kind of kept a real, you know, a conversation going. And at one point, they asked if I'd be interested in writing one of the adventures for them. And of course, I said, "Well, sure." You know, um, I had one that I'd been running at uh, at various game conventions. I called Time Travel. Okay. And in which the adventures went back in time to Victorian London, because Victorian London and Sherlock Holmes. And H.G. Wells, they were all favorites of mine. Right. So I I sent them back there and ran adventures like that. And they kind of wanted that, but it was kind of like, well, it wasn't really written up. So I, I, tried, I tried to put something together, but I, it didn't quite work. So by that time, they, they started publishing a Star Trek game and asked me to do some stuff for that. So I, I wrote a few little pieces on and off for that, some uh, alien races and that sort of thing. Um, but in the meantime, I discovered Call of Cthulhu, okay. which Lovecraft was one of my favorites. Um, I started reading him in college. A friend of mine loaned me the uh, 
the, uh, the uh, color out of space. And I read it, and I was just fascinated, and I read some more and saw how it was a connected universe. So we eventually, you know, read, read all the Lovecraft and as many of the uh, connected Cthulhu mythos books by other authors that I could. So when Call of Cthulhu was announced, I was like, wow, I've I got to get this. I was going to game conventions, and I'd kind of been talking to the people of Chaosium and, you know, learned about it and what was coming out. And when it did, um, you know, I kind of approached them and asked them if they'd be interested in a Victorian supplement. Right. Uh, so uh, they said, sure, because they were looking to expand the game outside the 1920s. So um, I wrote up uh, Cthulhu by Gaslight and um, did right. an adventure of, uh, of it with it kind of included some Sherlockian elements to it, uh, the Yorkshire Horrors, and um, I did, did all that. And, and eventually it, and it was published and ended up, uh, I think it was winning, winning a Gamer's Choice Award Wow! Uh, for that year at Origin. And, and, and what year is that? That... Um, I think it was for 1986. Okay. Uh, it, might, it was late, or it might have been 87, because or excuse me, yeah, 87, because late in 86, I think it came out. But because I remember writing it, uh, and I went, I took a break and went outside and wanted, I turned the TV on, and it was the Challenger disaster. Oh, okay, yeah, 1986, so, right, yeah. Right, so that, that, it helps me remember exactly when it was. And that's amazing, those kind of super tragic, you know, I, I was not old enough when, you know, Kennedy's, either Kennedy mm -hmm. was assassinated. So when Reagan was almost assassinated, you know, everyone remembers that. And the challenge during the 80s, I'm sure, those were memorable things. I, I want to go back a second, because definitely uh, Cthulhu by Gaslight, you know, you're well known for. But that's in 1986. So you started... Role playing in the early '80s is that a fair statement? You, so you were yeah, I think I think it was about 1980. Okay, and I was reading uh, an interview you did a while back where you used to play, like you said, Avalon Hill, which was kind of the gateway for my brother. My brother's older than me, and <laughs> he had Starship Troopers, and I saw you played Starship Troopers as well. Yes, so yes, um, so that I mean that game captured my imagination as a young child and. I don't remember if we won or lost. You know, my brother was six years older than me, and I think I was 10, so he clearly could have beat me. We also played Panzer Leader, which is another Avalon Hill game. So, um, But it sounds to me that whereas most of the people we know, if they did wargaming or some kind of, you know, that kind of Avalon Hill game, they gravitated to D&D, &D, but you really started with Traveler and more of the right. science fiction, and then you went into Cthulhu. So did you ever play D&D &D at all? Was that something you're even interested in? Actually, that is one game I actually never did play. You never played Dungeons & Dragons. Right. Okay, great. Yeah, we, well, I had other people um, at the game club who would run various games, but uh, they, none of them ever ran D&D &D when I was uh, they, uh, I remember playing Tunnels and Trolls. Okay, right. Um, and, Which is a um, uh, offshoot like it, but yeah, sure. Right, and the Fantasy Trip by Steve Oh, Jackson. Fantasy Trip, yeah. So And, and uh, okay. uh, you know, there were a couple other, um, there was a uh, um, Kingdom of Something Throne. Uh, uh, Petal, uh, Petal of the uh, Empire of the Petal Throne. Empire of the Petal, yeah. I remember playing that once. And, uh, most of the games, though, that we played were more contemporary, um, uh, like... Uh, uh, mercenaries and 
Spies and Private Eyes, something like that, uh, uh, and uh, other games like that we would play. Also, superhero games. Um, played uh, uh, Villain Vigilantes oh, starting out for superhero games. Right, right. And uh, then then uh, uh, Chasm said they were going to do Superworld, so I contributed a little bit to that, did playtesting for them on that. Uh, and got a, got a contributor's credit for that on the uh, first edition of that. Okay. Um, and I think I wrote an article for a supplement about weather in Superworld and how that works with weather control and that sort of thing. It's, it's just fascinating that, you know, again, most of the people we've talked to, they, you know, they read Vance and they read, you know, Fritz Leiber and that kind of ilk. And they, they may have gone back to you know, Lovecraft and Wells, like some of the people you've talked about, Jules Verne, more of that mm-hmm. turn-of-the-century futuristic, um, you know, kind of vision of the future, extended future. But it's, it's great to hear someone who, you know, basically skirted by all that kind of D&D lore. So um, the, the reason I brought it up also is, so you did um, also worked with, with uh, Steve Jackson, not the Steve Jackson from England, but the Jackson from States is game, yeah. and you worked on Space Gerps, correct? That was that your first big published work, or was that after Call of Cthulhu? Um, uh, it was yeah, Space that that came after Cthulhu by Gaslight. Oh, okay, and, and in fact, I, I think I don't remember if it was like a year after or two years after, but uh, it uh, it started out as a completely different project. They wanted to do a book on. Andre Norton's Merchant Class series, uh, with several books that Norton had written. And so I had started out on that, and then after a few months' work on that, they decided they wanted to do a generic space. So I had to greatly expand that. And, and then, uh, I actually, I think I ended up writing about twice as much material as they ended up including in the book. Um, yeah, so stuff. Us, he, he decided he wanted to do some other things in it. So, well, you know, we, it ended up a co-credit with him, which I certainly can't complain about. No. Um, so, uh, and and then that uh, that won the uh, Gamers Choice Award at Origins the year it came out as well. And so, coming up, you know, it's it's a big leap from in just a few years. People, you went from being more of a board gamer to a player to a, to a game master to creating your own games. What was the leap? How did you prepare to go from, you know, it's a, it's a big thing from writing a, you have a game system and you're developing an adventure or module to creating your own uh, role-playing game. What, what, what was, what made you want to do that versus just adventures for known um, role-playing settings? Oh, well, um, uh, again, it was kind of like talking with people. As I go to the game, to Gen Con just about every year, and, and you know, I talk to the, the creators and the, the various games. Um, and, you know, just uh, they were always looking for people, to, new people to, to uh, try something. And so I'd been writing, I'd been writing reviews and occasional articles for Space Game. Or, you know, they, they, they knew who I was, so... You know, I was all I was invited to write something if I wanted to, and 
that's why I, I kind of came around to the idea of Kazool by Gaslight. Okay. Because uh, I'd always been you know, a big fan of Sherlock Holmes, H.G. Wells. In fact, that traveler adventure I mentioned when they were time traveled back to Victorian London, they ended up in, in the middle of the War of the Worlds. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so the, it was... The original huge, War of the Worlds, not the... Right. So it was not futuristic weaponry against Martian tripods. Mm. So, so uh, and it's interesting because that was a big mashup, right? From this, you know, when I growing up, we watched mm-hmm. all the Star Treks, and of course, half the plots felt like they were always going back in time, or they're going to a world that was our an analog Earth, but there was some, you know, they were going back to where the Nazis were, and they went back to the uh, the bootleg era, you know, Prohibition era. So uh, I think the one time later shows they went back to turn of the century, and this time turn of the century, turn of the 20th century San Francisco. So there's always that throwback because you have period pieces and you know there's some grounding to it, I guess. Is, is that right. the allure to it? Um, so let's talk about Call of Cthulhu. I uh, have played a couple of times, not as the keeper, but as a, as a player. Found mm-hmm. it very interesting. Um, you know, again, coming from the D&D world where your character, you're trying to have them survive the story is important, but not as important as your character and your group surviving to mm-hmm. where Call of Cthulhu, it's all about the, the mystery and the drama and, you know, if your guy dies, that, that kind of comes with the territory sometime. So right. um, uh, Call of Cthulhu typically, you know, just like Lovecraft was more, so would you consider Lovecraft in time from the 20s and 30s and, and Victorians the one before that? Is that kind of the time periods? Is that correct in your mind, or how do you look at that? Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, the first first games, of course, we played. Uh, uh, we did them in the in the twenties. Um, in fact, I even wrote an, a, an adventure for the twenties, the Curse of Chogner Fawn, which was <clears throat> one of the uh, Lovecraft old ones that another author had created and hadn't been incorporated into the game yet. So uh, I wrote. Uh, I think that was the first. Uh, published of mine. Um, but then I, I decided, you know, you know, why not try taking it back to Victorian times? So I started running games back in there. And, uh, again, that's what, you know, I had asked them if they were, had any interest in that as a background piece. So, uh, actually, I I'd also, before that, I'd written an uh, article for, for Space Gamer uh, on a, a gamer's guide to Victorian London. Okay. Which was a lot. It was quite a bit scaled down, but it was kind of the same idea. In case anyone wanted to use Victorian London as a background, so for Cthulhu by Gaslight, I greatly expanded on that theme and and um, added it. You know, put it into Lovecraft's world. So, with, so I'm sorry. Yeah. So, Bill, um, again, as someone who hasn't played, uh, you know, hasn't run as a keeper. Is the rules for Cthulhu by Gaslight identical to the rules for the regular Call of Cthulhu, or is there something specific, period specific? Because you know, obviously, there's now there's almost every Cthulhu, Cthulhu in space, Cthulhu in ancient Rome, the uh, the pyramids. So, what what differentiates it all, uh, Cthulhu by Gaslight versus the regular regular Call of Cthulhu? Okay, well, it uses the same rules. Okay. There, you know, there, there are twists like different weapons, um, uh, old double-barreled shotguns, uh, and uh, yeah, elephant guns, 
<laughs> and uh, things like that. You know, uh, so it was, it was just mostly taking the period flavor and adapting that to the rules. Right. So um, there were uh, new character types, um, and just you know, like I said, a lot of new things. Just, just expanding on on the original game and taking it out of the twenties. Yeah, making it period specific, but the rules the rule set themselves. So if you played Call of Cthulhu, doing Cthulhu by Gaslight, it's not a it's not a leap from a understanding the game. It's just understanding the the period that goes with it. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. In fact, all, all the uh, Chaosium games all use the same basic rules. Okay, uh, it was uh, originally uh, derived from their Rune Quest, and then they used it across all the other games, Cthulhu. All Cthulhu, um, Super World, uh, books like that. So um, they even they put out one that was like a three-parter that was uh, fantasy, science fiction, and superhero. Uh, again, using the same rule system, expanding on those in those areas. Now, and then the uh, okay. superhero one, they expanded into Super World. Okay. So, um, you know, we, we interact with folks, shockingly, around the world. It's same, you know, of course, with the modern internet. Um, so we know a lot of folks from the, uh, Great Britain, the United Kingdom, and while they played D&D, and that was obviously the predominant game for a while, there tends to be a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, passion for RuneQuest and for Call of Cthulhu. Did you get a lot of fans from England or the you know, United Kingdom uh, reaching out to you about Cthulhu by Gaslight because of obviously the period piece? Um, actually, not not very much. Really. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, it was. Uh, well, maybe you will now. Maybe this will be the resurgence. <laughs> oh, we're. Uh... Yeah. This is, of course, you know, this was pre-internet, so right. yeah, it was, uh, there wasn't really that much of a, and, and I I really didn't have a you know I had a most of what I wrote, I didn't even have a computer. Well, I had a computer, but I didn't use it. I most of what I uh, I wrote was on typewriter. Sure. So I would type them out and then read them over and make handwritten corrections and send them in. Now, uh, you're, you're also a writer by trade as well. I mean, that was your profession that you... Uh... Uh, yeah, I, I was a... Uh, actually, I was an editor. Oh, okay. Well, um, yeah, I, I guess uh, you have to write first before you can edit, right? Isn't yeah. that how it works or something like that? Uh, so. Yeah, well, I, I had a, a degree from Indiana University uh, in uh, English composition okay. slash journalism. And um, almost and almost right out after I graduated, I got a job at the Saturday Evening Post. Oh, wow. Um, I was uh, as an assistant copy editor. And from there, when the copy editor left, I became the copy editor. So, um, so I worked there for three years editing uh, the magazine. That and one called Country Gentleman. And there were several newsletters that the company put out that I edited as well. Yeah, uh, so you had that background. Uh, right. Did, yeah. from, from there, I went to um, Endless Vacation Magazine. I was there quite a number of years. Um, in fact, I was, I was there during the time I wrote Gaslight and some of the other things. Okay. But, you, you know, obviously, you, uh, you have that background passion to do that. So it's not a far fetch on your free time to come up with this, especially tying in your... Uh, Interest in Victorian period literature and gaming, that all came together. So 
So, Bill, what uh, you know, if you're creating, because uh, again, I've never created a Call of Cthulhu uh, adventure. What are the key elements that I would want in it? What what makes a good Call of Cthulhu uh, adventure from your perspective? All right. Well, you have you have to first come up with a uh, a god or a creature or something that you know from the mythos that will fit whatever you you're you're doing. Um, like I said, like I, I wrote the. Uh, uh, the Christmas your Fawn, uh, which I decided that I wanted to put Chogger Fawn into the game. And from there, uh, I, I kind of worked backwards from that. What would be a good adventure? How would he work in the game? Uh, what mysterious elements would you pull in? And I kind of pulled in various elements for different Lovecraft stories and then kind of fit them together in my mind and and then I wrote, I wrote kind of a very rough outline. Uh, you know, most people wouldn't even recognize it as an outline. It was more like right. little pieces of uh, paper that I had things written on and and kind of brought them all together and kind of fit them into a narrative and then just started writing from there. So that's, that's usually how I do it. But as far as, you know, like what, when I created D&D Adventure... I kind of say, well, you got to have a big bad guy. In this case, it's the deity or the, the mythos creature, right? Mm-hmm. There has to be some things they have to find in order to defeat the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there should be some setbacks. There should be some friends. There should be some allies. Um, you know, it's if we're, we're doing a four-hour session, you need about six encounters. That kind of thing is the parameter that, you know, you kind of throw in the soup. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, wanting the characters or the players' choices to have some effect. Uh, you know, and if you know your players, some like more combat. Obviously, with Call of Cthulhu, combat is not really encouraged <laughs> for, the, for the most part. You should try, right. to, should try to avoid that at all costs because it's super deadly. Um, at least from my experience, it was, you know, that as a D&D player, your answer is not fighting things. In fact, your answer is typically running away. Uh, <laughs> Um, so, you know, is there, you know, investigations are, can be challenging in other, uh, you know, that's really not the focus of other games. And so in, in Call of Cthulhu, that's, you know, you're trying to elicit some, you're trying to solve some mystery. Like you said, what's the right. curse, what's the curse there? Is there, is there tropes that work better uh, in Call of Cthulhu than others? Because again, I've never written one, so I'm trying to get some insight into what you think really works well. If I was to write an adventure, you know, I, I pick one of the deities. What are the tropes that are easy for an, uh, uh, a beginning uh, keeper to do versus, you know, one that's very experienced? Okay, well, I always found it was good to have some really well-developed NPCs, mm-hmm. um, characters that the people, the players get to interact with and have to, to try to determine what their motives are. Um, like I always, almost always had a red herring of some kind that the players would latch on to, thinking, "Oh, this is the bad guy," and nine times out of ten, it wouldn't be. Right. Okay. Because that would that would be too easy, of course. Yeah. But uh, then you know things, uh, little clues and little bits of information that would help them get down certain paths. Little sidetracks sometimes, interesting, but not necessarily part of the main adventure. But something they can do if they want to go off and investigate this. Um, that, that's kind of why I, I call it Cthulhu characters are called 
investigators because, uh, you know, they, they want to get in there and investigate, find out what the situation is, what's going on, what's behind it. Um, I, and, and, again, it kind of varies. Like, uh, I had a character in, in uh, Charlie Nafon that was a kind of, he was like a club, had a club foot. Mm. So, you know, they're, they're in this spooky, they break into his house thinking they're going to find something. And they hear this kind of weird clunk, clunk, clunk sound coming. And of course, they think it's a monster. So, you know, they're getting ready to, to blow them away uh, or else run away, depending on who it was. Um, so, you know, just little things like that. Uh, the atmosphere, you know, little, you know, red herrings, uh, rich characters they can interact with. And an interesting setting or situation. Um, like I, I did uh, for the Cthulhu Now, I did the adventure, the Killer Out of Space, which was based on the Color Out of Space. Only it was in modern times. Okay. So it involved the space shuttle accidentally running into the Color Out of Space in orbit uh, after the end of the adventure that Lovecraft wrote, and it just got on board and caused the shuttle to crash, and so then the area was all uh, cordoned off by the military, And but someone from inside called the investigators, uh, an old friend, and said something's going on here that's not right, it's not what they say, it's not an anthrax breakout, it's something else, but it got the investigators to decide, well, let's go check it out. So, you know, they get in there, and among the people they meet is this uh, crazy old uh, preacher who um, seems to be know what's going on, and, and they think, well, let's ally with him, and he's going to help us. And, and, of course, in the end, he turns out to be completely nuts and leads him down the wrong path. <laughs> so, so you know, they end up having to get out of that. And, and, and then after everything else, they finally end up having to face the color, which um, nine times out of, out of ten, that's fatal for... Uh, I, I, most games, I, I had one player, I did a campaign. Uh, it was one of the published campaigns, um, um, something about Yogg-Sothoth, uh, Shadow of Yogg-Sothoth. Okay, right. And, um, you know, led them on a long campaign. I, I added, you know, things myself to it. Um, but by the end of the campaign, only one of the original characters was still there. And that was because almost every time they ran into a monster or a creature or something, he immediately went insane and went catatonic. <laughs> and by the, and it, that saved his life. He just shut down. He was, yeah. That, he yeah, so down. by the time everything was over, he wakes up and goes, oh, what, what happened? <laughs> uh, well, uh, so-and-so got eaten. Oh, my goodness. That's... So he, he survived the entire campaign. Only to get killed at the end of it by a werewolf. And one of the ones I, I ran for the chaos and, and published in a book, just regular monsters. Oh, okay. Yeah, because, you know, the, to your point, it, it can be tied to the mythos, but you also can add in any of the supernatural creatures right. or normal mm-hmm. creatures. Okay. So um, you did that for a while, and um, I want to segue to what brought us here, or what, why we're talking together, is... Um, I read your forward, and I'm holding up for our folks watching. Uh, Opus work, so you want to be a rock star, right? So, and I, right. I, I read the uh, forward, and I read your interviews. So, 
tell me how you went from, you know, building uh, games for others, not for others, but on, based on other programs and then doing GURPS to wanting to do it really something that was at least unique from my perspective, which is a, a rock and roll RPG. Okay, well, I, I'd always uh, been into rock and roll. I mean, I, I got first got turned on by the Beatles when they first came out. Uh, and in fact, I, that was my last semester in grade school. And um, some friends of, of mine and I, we got together and, and did a Beatles parody. We called it The Cockroaches. <laughs> so, so we, you know, we, we kind of we pantomimed the Beatles records up. I, I'd taken styrofoam and cut out guitars like the Beatles actually had, pasted covers to them, so got yardsticks in them for the fretboard, and that's then we got up and did I Want to Hold Your Hand and some others. Yeah, um, there was a this giant uh, styrofoam hand that they had, someone had made for the school, and so um, I borrowed it, and we had somebody stick the hand out when we did I Want to Hold Your Hand, that sort of thing. Mm. So uh, anyway, we did that, and then we kind of got to talking about, well, you know, we want to really form a band. And we kind of talked that over for a few years. I, I finally talked, <clears throat> talked my hand to getting me a, a guitar, electric guitar, but it was one of those uh, Japanese models with the strings like a half an inch above the frets. Oh, right. right. So, you know, I couldn't, I, I could barely press down on them. So I kind of messed with that and learned a few chords, but that was that, several years. Um, meanwhile, I was in drama club uh, at school, in a number of plays and things. And one of my friends in there decided he wanted to get a, a guitar and playing. But that was when the right when the Monkees TV show came on. So um, he he was inspired by that. So he, he got a good guitar. I think it was a Gretsch. Oh wow! Uh, can't remember the uh, it was a Gretsch Solid Body. I can't remember the name of it. But he got that, and I tried playing, and it was like, whoa, I can push these strings down. So I managed to uh, talk my aunt into getting me one. It, it, was a, it was a cheaper model. It wasn't the same one. His had a fiber arm and, and a cut and two pickups, and mine was just a single pickup. Uh, but it still played well. And so uh, once I got that, I actually started learning how to play the guitar. So uh, we again we kind of decided we were going to have we were going to put a band together. Uh, so we we recruited a guy I I knew at drama club who was a singer, and a, a, a friend of my other friends was going to be the drummer, but he wasn't really into it, so he dropped out pretty quick. And then we recruited another guy from drama club, and he took over as the drummer. Um, now my friend. Um, he, uh, he was an only child. Well, no, I guess he had a brother, a much older brother, but, you know, it was him and his mom. And so uh, she liked to indulge him. So she she basically bought him everything. He equipped the entire band. Oh, I love those kind of people. They're great. Yeah. So, you know, so we got us a PA system. And he got several guitars. He, he ended up uh, trading the Gretchen for a, a Gibson SG. And he, did, he got a Gretsch 12-string. Wow. And I started off, off with a uh, knock, uh, a Greco, I think it was, knockoff of the uh, Hoffner fiddle bass. And uh, then and he bought the drums for the drummer and everything, and bought a couple Fender amps, a bandmaster and a bassmaster. 
And so we kind of, you know, even though I had my guitar, I ended up, when we got the band together, I ended up using his SG most of the time, sure. or, or the 12-string, because he decided he'd be the bass player. He eventually got a Fender Precision dead, which I think he probably still has, because he told me he was going to keep them for his children. Yeah, I'm sure that's a, a beautiful, well, a 19, late 1960s uh, key bass is worth a lot of money. So that's some serious equipment back there. Or, yeah, and you, yeah, and you're in high yeah. school at this point, or even younger than that. You're in junior high. Yeah, yeah, it was it was high school. It was about okay. uh, I think this was about '67 when we okay. started. So uh, we started out, you know, like because he was a big monkeys fan. He had a bit of one of these big monkeys chord books. We started out playing a lot of monkey songs. And we, we were just like, like we played for drama club parties where they didn't really care what we played. But uh, we also, I you know, I, I used to write plays. Uh, little short skits and parodies for uh, some of the festivals they had at high school, and uh, I, I did one based on the monkeys. I called the Flunkies, <laughs> and so we actually played songs in, in, during that, like in a monkey adventure. So um, it was like, uh, so yeah, you had a long pedigree. Did you did it ever get past high school, or did you keep playing afterwards? That or yeah, uh, I played in that band through high school. We we went through several name changes. We started out as the Lunar Surface, L-O-O-N-E-R. And then we changed to the Kaleidoscope Tears. We wanted to be more psychedelic. And then finally we went to Crater because we wanted to be more hard rock. <laughs> so, so, you know, we played a lot of the 60s uh, classics and things. Um, then uh, after school, uh, the band kind of broke up and we drifted apart. And then uh, um, I was working uh, in the uh, the college scene shop, theater scene shop, with a guy. And he said, I mentioned how we used to play. I used to play, and I'd written some songs, and I played them for him. And he said that we ought to get a band together, and he'd manage us. So um, he had a, a, a girlfriend who was a good singer, and she knew a lead guitarist. And I managed to get the singer and the uh, bass player back in from uh, from my, our high school band, except by then he wanted to play guitar. Mm-hmm. I started out on rhythm guitar, and he was on bass guitar. But we, we switched, so he was on a rhythm guitar and keyboards, and I was on bass guitar. So we uh, he'd written a few songs, so we called ourselves India. I-N-D-Y-A for Indianapolis. Which is where you're from, basically. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, um, not, so the, not the Formula Ones or the, whatever, the, I forgot the open, I don't know what they're called. Isn't that Formula Ones? Are they, no, they're not Formula Ones. What are those? Uh, yeah, Indianapolis. The, the 500. Yeah, 500. Yeah, I don't know what kind yeah. of cars they're on. I'm, sure. I'm showing my uh, complete ignorance on racing. I know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know that much about it myself. You know, I grew up here. But anyway, so like I said, we had that little band together and it was. And we went, uh, we recorded a tape of original songs, and the manager sent it into this uh, contest called the Intercollegiate Music Festival. And we got a letter saying that we'd been accepted for the sectional. So we, uh, <clears throat> we packed up our gear in, into a station wagon, and we drove out to, uh, I think it was Carbondale, Illinois, at the university there. And, you know, we performed in there. And uh, we, you know, I thought we did really good, cause, but the problem, we were doing all original music, 
and the other bands were doing like Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young Lovers. Oh, right. And that sort of thing. So, uh, so in our category, we ended up taking third place, which wasn't bad, but we lost to a, a cover band. Was it out of three? Or was there more than three uh, bands? Then that was good. I, yeah, I can't. I, you know, I I don't remember how many played there. There were a number of them. Okay, so I was just I was just but, teasing because that's I always say. Oh, we came in third out of three, which is never good. Yeah, so I'm like, yeah. If you... yeah. So, but but you know, it, it was uh, interesting to do. You know, we we came back and we played uh, at a local movie theater between the showings at Woodstock. Um, and uh, that's a tough was, gig when you've got one of the best play. Things in rock playing Woodstock, and then you're coming out playing. You're, you're the you're the band. That's funny, right? Yeah. So we did that, and that, that band kind of uh, a couple of people decided to leave that band, and you know we kept going. We and, you know we got some other people in to replace them, and then uh, again, you know, people dropped out. So it ended up being uh, me and a guitarist, and we had a drummer, and we played around um, various places for the summer and then, then joined another band. And, you know, um, I said, we, we played various places here in the city and around. And anyway, that, that was kind of my background. We, we never made a lot of money. It was, it was all for fun. Mostly. Sure. So, um, but did, that, did that through the seventies pretty much? Yeah. Yeah. And so, then um, did you play in the eighties as well with bands or was it, uh, uh, kind of the band kind of broke up. You know, I, I kind of took a hiatus there for a while. I was wasn't really playing much. Just uh, sometimes we get together and jam just for fun, right? Um, <clears throat> but um, anyway, I, you know, I, by that time, you know, like I said, I got into the role playing games. I got to you know trying to think, well, what what would be a different kind of? And I got to think, oh wait, well, what about a rock and roll playing game, playing the the pun on roll. Right. Yeah, and it kind of gave me the idea. And then at the time, there was a, another. There was a small company doing again doing traveler products. Uh, in uh, they were Fort Wayne, Indiana. I'm not sure they were one of the other towns here. And you know, I corresponded with them, and um, I you know, worked. On, you know, reviewed some of the products. And I, I kind of I shift the idea to them, and they were really enthusiastic over it. So I was originally going to do it for them. So I uh, started working on it. You know, we do doing playtesting some of the scenarios with my regular gaming group. I, and then uh, I actually I had the, the manuscript all done and all complete, and um, sent it to them, and kept getting um, you know. Well, we don't have, we can't even get it right just now. And uh, well, we're we're not going to be able to do it just now. Mm. Thing is, they even though they they rented a table at Gen Con, and and I went there with with nothing but a, a notebook and <laughs> and, the, and the printed out pages for it to show for it. Right. You know, I, I I took other stuff with me to sell. You know, games I had, games things to sell and. Um, and what year is this? Is this 1990? Uh, or is that this... would have been, I think, maybe 89. Okay, so it's, it's right before you finished the, the game. I mean, you've just finished the game, but you it's not published at this point? Is, I'm just trying right. to remember. Yeah, it's, gotcha. Yeah, it was, it was just the manuscript. So, um, so after a while, it came 
became kind of apparent they weren't going to do anything. They they kept talking about another game they were going to do, and they never did anything with it. Their products kind of slipped away, uh, and we ended up in the bargain bin <laughs> at the game store. So it was kind of like, well, boy, I wonder what I do with it. And I had a guy there who worked at the store, and he was kind of a young or did sales and stuff, and, and he said, well, what should, um, let's publish it. We'll, we'll publish ourselves. We'll host, uh, we're all games, because he had created a mercenary group that he called for Traveler. He called the Winterhawk Mercenaries. Okay. So uh, anyway, so I said, well, okay. So, you know, got it all down. Uh, I, I can't remember what point he dropped out, though. <laughs> Yeah, you because know, um, originally I found an artist who had traded a Winterhawk game symbol for us, and uh, you know he did some artwork. The artwork actually ended up the game, and um, then at one point the guy dropped out, and I, I was kind of trying to decide what to do. And he said, "Well, hey, why don't you go ahead and publish it yourself? Uh, you know, called Bill Barton Games. You know, your your name's known in the gaming business. Uh, well." Oh, okay. Mm. I didn't have any better ideas at the time, so I thought, okay, well, well I'll go ahead and do it. And my wife uh, amazingly agreed that we could take our savings and, and pay for the publishing. So uh, we uh, And that's were, a huge were, risk, and it wasn't cheap. It's not like today, internet publishing. I mean, you've got printing, which is very expensive, and, and marketing. You had a, you're doing it all yourself, so that's Right, incredible. yeah. Yeah, it was... Uh, this was right before Windows came out because I, I saw I did it on a on a DOS computer. Right. Um, I can't remember which word program process program I used. Oh no, I had a. I somehow I, I remember I got a uh, an actual publishing program. I don't know remember the name of it. It was a very very early publishing program. So I, I managed to publish it. I had a scanner. I scanned in the artwork. Uh, I. You know, put all the pages together and everything, and then there was a local printer. So I, you know, I had the artwork and the cover with the the, uh, uh, the artist had done for us. And yep, I went to talk to him, and you know, we kind of ended up figuring out a, a price point that we could actually actually publish it at. Um, we couldn't afford a full color cover or anything, so we went with a three color, and. Why uh, you see the colors and cover as it is? I kind of you know used well have a spotlight on it. Yeah, I think it's fine. I mean, if, if you didn't point out to me that it wasn't full color, I wouldn't have known that. It seemed, I mean, it it seemed colorish. You know, it's only <laughs> it, it's only now that you mention, I'm like, oh yeah, I guess there is only three colors. So that yeah, I, that's no problem. But anyway, and you know, so we we kind of dropped our most of our savings into it at the time, hoping. Hoping we'd make it back, which unfortunately we did not. Um, yeah, so, uh, but our friend Rob, I guess his purchase was a little too late to help in, in last year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, anyway, so uh, I went ahead and uh, got a table at Gen Con that year. Um, and we, we and, uh, I got a couple friends to go with me. and we went and we sold it at, at Gen Con. And, um, and this it, is Gen Con 90 this time, correct? Is this 90? What was that? This is Gen Con 90? I believe so, yes. Okay. That was the year we published it. So 
990. And the only reason I mentioned that is because I found online someone is selling, it's not on eBay, it's some other site, a So You Want to Be a Rockstar signed by you from Gen Con 1990 out there. Okay. So All that's, right. why, that's why I was asking. So I, I may need to pick that up so I have a collector's item. So, uh, oh, okay. It, was, uh, so it says Rock On by Bill Barton. Wrote yep. on it. So, <laughs> so go ahead. I'm sorry. So you're at, so you're at Gen Con 1990. Put your, you and your wife have put all your money into this, and you're at Gen Con. And is this in Indianapolis or still in Wisconsin? Uh, I think it was still in Wisconsin at that okay. time. Okay, yeah, I don't remember when it moved to Indianapolis. So Yeah, so I, I'm pretty sure. You pack up the car, you head up to Wisconsin, and you are you know, trying to sell this in front of thousands of people. That's, that's a daunting task. So how, how did that go? Yeah. Uh, well... Again, I, t- I took some stuff that I had that actually old games that I had that I going to sell, sell the things we like. I, at one time for a Sherlock Holmes group I was in, I did a Sherlockian trivia set, so I had an extra copy of that left over, and so I took it, sold it, and sold some other things. You know, extra extra copies I had, um, and it's a. Uh, we made back our, our booth money. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's good. At least you didn't lose so, the money from the booth. Okay. Yeah. So we, we did that, and uh, I said some of the local stores bought some copies. Um, and um, I think I sold, uh, we had boxes of, I can't remember how many were in a box. Um, I can't remember, 60 or 100. But I sold one box, I think. Uh, and, and basically, after that, things kind of stalled. Um, I couldn't really afford to go back to Gen Con again. Um, I, I think next time I went, it was either just go as a game or else I helped out at someone else's. Right. Um, but like I said, unfortunately, I didn't have the money for a lot of publicity. I couldn't, didn't have money for ads. Um, I didn't even have a barcode on it because I just was naive enough not to know you needed to have a barcode. Oh, yeah. I just That was someone, someone looked at it there and said, oh, where's your barcode? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was, it was fun. It was an interesting deal. I still, I still enjoy it. I still consider it one of my best works. Um, and I continue to run it at, at conventions. Oh, you do? Uh, okay, that's great. Well, I, I don't anymore. Right. I did. You did. You did yeah, after for that For a while, time. Right. yeah. Most local conventions, and then when Gen Con did finally come to Indianapolis, I, I ran some of it there. I ran, I would always run, I'd run at least one or two Call of Cthulhu's, and then one or two uh, rock stars. So I'm, I'm I'm looking at the uh, the play testers here. I see a Vicky Barton. Is there any other folks besides uh, her that stand out as play testers that you want to? Did they you know, on play testing? They helped you out because there's. Um, well, Bruce Coleman was a he was a good friend. He was my gamer buddy for a long time. He was the one I, we went to the game club together. Oh, okay, and he played most of my games. I think I think he's on. He should be on their list. He is. He's the first one on there as the playtester. Okay. Tester. 
So Aaron Burks, Chan uh, Lauterbach, I'm just reading Randy Porter. So uh, a, a bunch of people play tested. And mm-hmm. um, so let's talk about the game itself. So, uh, you know, again, it, uh, we like first edition D because we played it back in the day. Mm-hmm. And we never, or this is Dan and I, my co-host, we're just don't, not one of these gamers who like playing a lot. Of game. We, we, I've dabbled in more than him back in the day. But just the thought of learning another system is is painful. Just you know, it's like learning another language, which didn't uh-huh. didn't enamor me. So I appreciated when uh, Rob got it for me. But I'm like, oh, here we go. So I read it, and I'm first like, okay, I get it. And I so here's what I like about it. I like it's rock and roll themed, which is cool. Um, you can take it pretty much anywhere you want. I also appreciate that. If you really wanted to run the game and you've played some other role-playing game, you really only need to read um, how many pages of rules. You know, page 22 and 23. And everything else can... uh, It's a D6 system for those who are listening. So you don't need fancy dice. You don't need those fangled dice. Any six-sided dice will work. Uh, You do need to understand, and I think you do a nice job explaining what a 2D1 is or a 2D3, you know, because there's a lot of, obviously, to get the amount of variations, you need to use different permutations of the, the D6. So mm-hmm. I, I like that part. I, um, it's, it's very interesting, you know, again, coming from a D&D background, the idea of leveling up, there is a little bit of a leveling, a leveling up kind of thing. Um, so you could have a campaign. Uh, if you wanted to, it it always strikes me some of these games are challenging to keep the thing going from you know whatever level one to level like D and D becomes very hard to run as you get to higher mm. levels. It just becomes right. kind of breaks down. This you could you know it, I could see it continuing. I just don't know if people would be that interested in in that. You'd really have to get wacky characters and keep um, the challenges from. Not Ramping up, you know, it's kind of like the traveler situation. You, know, you mentioned uh-huh. traveler, and I remember reading reading your article that you became sort of uh, unenamored or not enamored with traveler. And traveler always was you either were so poor, you had nothing, you're on other people's ships, or eventually you got your ship, but you could never have like you know the dreadnought because you know you need a cast of thousands. So um, you either were poor or you, you got as much money as you ever needed, and it was kind of then why are you adventuring here? Um, Oh, for, for those who don't know, what, what you do is you create characters, and um, they, they typically have, there's instead of six kind of s- statistics in D&D, there are ten. The, the additional ones are focused on performance uh, and, and that type of, and luck, you know, because again, uh, uh, you need that when you're doing performances. Um, and then each of the characters gets a number of um, instruments that they learn from their intelligence. And then ultimately they make a band and then the band has attributes to it. So there's a band attribute and there's a, a character attributes. And, and then it's up to the, the game master to take it where you want to take it. You could go, mm-hmm. I guess the way I look at it, and correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, when I looked at the thing is you can either go Josie and the Pussycats where, you know, you're kind of a bubblegum pop and you go these, or Scooby-Doo where you do mysteries like that. Or you could go, Almost Call of Cthulhu. Now that I know the Call of Cthulhu background, there's a lot of the really deep horror kind of. Uh, you give a bunch of examples of how to run adventures. 
There was a number of those in there. So do you see any others that were very popular from when you ran the, uh, the game stuff yourself? Um, what I used to do, um, I, I would run, take some of the little mini adventures mm-hmm. and I would expand them to, uh, for the convention. Um, like the, uh, I had one, um, uh, total name, name is escaping me. It might've been, a, I think it was the shadow of Yog Eggnog, right. which was a Cthulhu parody. And so I, I remember that, doing that one several times. So I had one that never got, I never got around to publishing because, you know, I couldn't afford to publish anymore after the main game flopped. So, but there was one that was kind of loosely based on, on Yellow Submarine. Um, that actually, a, a friend of mine and I, when we were in high school, I was editor of the paper and he was a cartoonist. And we put together a cartoon that kind of melded superheroes with, with Yellow Submarine and and it ran for one semester. So I kind of took that as the basis uh, and, and had characters in it. It kind of had, uh, you know, fantasy characters like uh, Slow Hand the Barbarian. <laughs> and um, there was a, a, a huge wall called the Walrus. Nice. And um, then, uh, let's see, I had uh, a giant snail called Quinn the Escargo. And you know, there, there were, it was just kind of wacky fantasy things together, and and you know, and, and it was a similar goal to Yellow Submarine, but with, just with different stuff. Um, I'd also I'd started working on a rock, rock and what was it, rock and horror role playing supplement that would have all kinds of different horror aspects to it, um, brought into the game. Like uh, I had the. Uh, like the werewolves of, of London that were like W-E-A-R. They were from Carnaby Street. They were 60s werewolves wearing psychedelic clothing and things like that. I actually had uh, the artist, Rockstar, had actually did some art for me for it before it turned out uh, that it wasn't feasible to do. Um, and, uh, they did a... But like I said, I'm, I'm only, mostly I did those. After a while, it became apparent that nobody really was going to recognize the main adventure that I had at the end of the book. So I ran that at a few uh, conventions, too. Right. The, and, uh, the, uh, obviously, your, and, and your homage to uh, Sherlock Holmes, the band that you have in here is Sherlock and the CDs. And right. The, mm-hmm. uh, the, there, so there's an adventure in here, The Sounds of, of Vaster Hills, is the adventure. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it's it's a nice beginning, not beginning milestone. It's an adventure of how to use it because, obviously, when you're starting a new a new playing a new game, you know, if you play D and D or if it's another fantasy game, you can got the trope. But this is okay. You're a rock and roll star. So what does that mean? So I, I think you do a really mm-hmm. good job of people have never played the rock and roll star, so they have a lot of definitions. So it's mm-hmm. very it's very clear you have a love of of music and, and rock popular music, which is super cool. That's mm-hmm. That's that's great. Um, I, I I think I, I won't call it criticisms, but you know I've, I've only played it once. You know I I, I jammed it once for uh, for our play test, and we're going to play a test in here. I think some of the stuff would only be useful in a campaign, um, where you know so you know a lot of the band stuff. You know again, if it's a one time, may or may not be as useful. 
I also, I also have a question on, so we, there's a lot, there's probably, I guess, what was your thought about putting a lot, you know, it's not like there's a lot of it in here, but there is some things about combat and you get into action, t- you know, action phases and it, it, it can get a little noodly as far as a lot of work involved with it. Whereas, you know, I like paranoia, which is still kind of crunchy in some things, but it's, it's, it's very dramatic, the fighting. It doesn't get very tactical. It doesn't get very, not a lot of rules as far as that. So was that a conscious yeah. decision to put more, you know, damage by, because you have lists for not only for sticks you throw, but shotguns and hand mm-hmm. grenades and that kind of thing. So I was just curious, you know, that kind of, when you, when you put combat in there, I almost feel like people then want to fight. You know what I'm saying? And that should be <clears throat> thing. So what's your thought on that? Yeah, actually, that that um, combat section, it was most of it was pulled from another game that me and some others were working on, which was a, a time patrol game, and um, it we worked up a lot of I you know rules on it. I worked up a lot of the combat stuff on it, and at the time, uh, the the one the company I was going to do it for, um, I think the name was Paranoia Unlimited or something like that. Hmm. Anyway, what I was going to do for them, they wanted a, a combat section. Okay. So I, I pulled the, I put the big combat section in. Um, but then after they pulled out, and I got to thinking of it, and I was thinking, you know, most people aren't going to use that. So I'd say I put in a, a, a quick and fast combat section. But uh, I, for some reason, I just said, well, I was, I was told I should leave the main one in just in case for people who really like that sort of thing. So I, I left it in. Now, if I were doing it again again today, I probably would have left that out. I'm just going with the quick and fast on that section because whenever I ran it at the games, I always just fast one. Yeah, and that to me was, again, if I, again, playing it once, so take, take my, this is for people out there, I would definitely mm-hmm. get it. And, uh, you know, um, we, I know Rob is, is, is working with you to procure a few copies, so maybe you can, uh, I'm sure he'd, he'd work with folks to uh, uh, sell them. Because this is a fun, it's a really fun game. It's, it's you know, the, the problem with, like, some of the older games, they're trapped in the 80s or 70s when the technology, well, this is fine. You're playing, you're playing rock stars from the 80s, which is the last, you know, after that, you got grunge and... That was the end of the rock star era. You know, really, there's only a couple of bands that. Yeah. U2 is yeah, probably was, the last I, super. Foo Fighters are probably the last two rock stars that I can think of. I'm sure there's others, but they, the, the rock star itself kind of, you know, over the last 10 or 15 years has disappeared. Right. Yeah, I, I, um, I was going actually working on, on an update for it that I was going to offer for people. <laughs> it was going to be a, a 90s. Thousands of updates, um, and I actually had had it, had it written up. That actually uh, did, did all the layout and everything on it. Uh, did PDFs of it, and um, and then before I could uh, actually try printing it, I lost my job, and then they were doing a big cutback where I was working, and it was, it was more economical to get rid of some of those us who had been there a while right. and get new people in who would work for less. So I, yeah. I ended up getting the axe and, and at that point cash became, became really tight. So 
Uh, and then we moved right after that. And that's kind of somewhere all, all, all the, uh, the updates packed away somewhere, and I have not seen it since. Oh, well, and, <laughs> uh, you know, and I think people can, I mean, they get the general idea. So for, for those, um, the way this works, it's a skill-based game. And you, you roll attributes, and the, basically the idea is um, you're, you have a task. If you're, the player says they want to do something, the GM basically says, okay, that's, uh, you have to roll under the attribute that's appropriate. And the number of dice determines how difficult it is. So the more difficult, the more dice. And there are complications, as Bill calls them. You know, so if they're trying to play guitar while on top of a bus that's moving and it's in a rainstorm, you know, you have to roll into their talent 4d6 or 5d6. Let's, I'm just making up numbers here. And right. if they're skill, if they're very, if they're highly skilled, they get, they can increase their, um, their attribute by either two points or four points uh, based on how skilled they are. So if they're a professional or expert, and so that's basically it. It's, and so for those who've played any other game, you basically set a difficulty score, and you try, in this case, you try to roll under. And a, a cool mechanic that Bill has, so I, I want to get your inspiration for this, um, you have natural highs and bummers, right? And so the idea is um, if you all, so the best roll, so if you have to roll 3d6, the best roll to roll under your attribute is a 3, and the worst roll, of course, is 18. And so, where did you come up with that mechanic, and, um, and, and why did you put it in the game? Oh, well, um, I think, you know, I can't say I completely came up with it on my own. Okay. It seems to me that I remember playing a game somewhere where it did something like that, where, where the very, uh, um, if you roll all the best score you... Yeah, that you could possibly roll, then then it was like an all an automatic success, and then same thing with an automatic failure. And I wanted to do that because in, in, in life, there's always a slight chance somebody can luck into something. Yeah. So I wanted to have it so that even if they were, you know, if it looked like it, they had no chance in the world if they happened to roll all threes on three dice, or you know, all, all or all ones on three dice, they could. They could still succeed. They still had a chance. Uh, and the same thing, there, you know, there's always still a chance you might fail, no matter how much you know. So that, that's kind of why I did that, the, the natural high and the, and the bummer. And, and so, so just since I have you on, since I have some questions, uh, when, so in theory, it's harder to get those the more dice you have to throw. Right. So it's really... So a normal check, so again, for those, it's 3 6 is the normal check, you are more likely to get one of those extreme successes or failures than you would if it's a more difficult task, basically. Is right. That, is yeah. that fair? Okay. Good. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought I read. Um, so the, the character creation is lengthy but fun, meaning mm -hmm. you've got a lot of things you have to figure out. Like, uh, we did have a little fun with this. So I rolled using your height chart, which is on page five. It mm -hmm. says, roll D3 plus three plus one D1 to get their height and feet. 
and then you may add 2d6 minus d2 inches for the exact height to the inch. So um, if you roll d3 plus 3 plus 1, at a, at a minimum, they're, you know, it's, they're going to be 4 foot tall. But right. very likely, it's, it, is, um, it is very likely they're going to be 6, they, you know, there's like a 1 in 3 chance they're going to be 6 or 7 feet tall. And then when you add the... <laughs> And when you had the 2D6 minus D2, uh, so two of the characters were over seven feet tall. They were like seven, <laughs> seven foot six oh, okay. and seven foot 11. And, um, and then on their weight, uh, add a base weight of 90 pounds, add 3D6 minus three times 10. And then for female, you could change a little bit more. Um, I had to give them the minimum weight, 150 pounds, because they came under. So, oh, so, okay. so the, the, the story was two of them are like these twin towers that met in high school because they obviously were freakishly tall because one was 7'6 <laughs> and one was 7'11 or something and 160 oh, okay. pounds. So um, I don't know if you saw that in your play test that, um, you know, being myself 5'8, it was the land of the giants that, <laughs> that we oh. had here. It was, it was a lot of fun to do that. So. Um, yeah, I, I don't. When we played this, I don't remember getting really extreme results, but it may, it may have just been it happened that way. And if you know, <laughs> at least it might have been something I would have rethought if I did a second edition. Yeah, I mean, basically, um, you have a thirty-three percent chance when I figured it out to get six or seven feet uh, because <laughs> um, you know on the D three. You've got a two and six chance of getting uh, a, you get a four and six chance of getting five and a six, and a one and you know fifty percent chance to get that extra foot. So it's very common to get six or seven feet, and and then typically you roll two d six, which is what average of seven minus a d two. So you're going to be six foot six or seven <laughs> foot six very very frequently. So it was just funny. They just have these giant, oh, okay. just these giant, but you you know. Um, and one of the other fun things I ha- that I saw in here is, um, which I, it kind of reminded me a little bit of Traveler, but not exactly. So the claim to fame of Traveler, for those who don't know, is you could die in combat and cre- character creation. That's especially if you're going for scouts, right? That was the if you're in the scouts, you could die, but you got cool stuff. It was no, you know no risk, no reward. Um, so you have this idea of quirks and disabilities that. These are rock stars, and they should be weird. And so they have all these cool little quirks. And um, in order to buy skills, you, you, it's based on your intelligence, but you can tr- get more quirks so you can buy more skills. Is that basically correct, right, uh, Bill, basically? Yeah. Right. So um, people could be completely weird and have all these de- you know, almost debilitating quirks um, but you could be more talented there. So it really uh, emphasizes the role play. So what was the motivation for that? Because uh, I think that's a fun mechanic. Yeah, I, well, I always enjoyed quirky characters. Um, I remember um, playing uh, Tunnels and Trolls once. I think I ended up with a, with a, a dwarf with a, uh, some kind of speech impediment or something. Or, and I was always in... And always sneezing, and so I just played that to the hills, played the character to the hills, and that was a lot of fun. And, and a lot of times the games I that I then 
the uh, the more the odder the carriage, the more fun it was to play. Right. So that's why I set up the cork system so that you know. I and I think I kind of I did say I believe that if if people roll a cork, they didn't like or didn't feel like it'd be fun to play. They didn't need to take it. They could try something else. Nah, we ignore roll. that. I ignored that. I just whatever okay. it came. Up, yeah, that's, yeah, I, but yeah, for me it was always always the most fun just to roll and see what comes up with, and then. You know, use use my ingenuity and creativity to play that character. So I, I was hoping that others would see that as a way to be more creative. Oh yeah, to me that's incredible. That's so. Just kind of, um, let me look at the uh, give some ideas of the quirks um, mm-hmm. you can get. So obviously, you can be lazy. You can be compulsive, obsessive. You have delusions. You know, have bad habit, flamboyant. So some of them are not outright. Punitive, they're just, uh, you have a pet peeve. You could uh, be easily bored. So, like, you know, it's, it'll be interesting. Uh, so when the, when the playtesters did it, they did try to work them in. And, you know, depending on how many they have, it's easy for them to start kind of stepping all over each other, trying to be as quirky <laughs> as, the <laughs> other, as the other person. But generally, it, w- it worked out pretty well. And then they have some ones that are, um, disabilities, which is you know obviously worse than that, physical addiction, um, you know, hearing impaired. It's got, a few of them had that, so you know we basically took all these features that was rolled, and that's kind of came up with the backstory, which was super cool. Because uh, so the so the story is so we um, we we play again. We're big fans of Dungeons and Dragons first edition, and. A lot of times, these weird names they come up, and we thought, "Oh, that was a great band." They opened up for Venom or Metallica or whoever it was. So one of them mm-hmm. is Pseudo Undead. So we've taken it now to extreme. In fact, for those watching the show, I'm wearing my Pseudo Undead Ride the Cockatrice T-shirt uh, that I got made, which is available on our store. For those shameless plug. Please feel free to go buy one. It helps the uh, helps the show. So the idea was, hey, let's use this. Um, Let's use this uh, game to come up with how the pseudo undead came to be and, and what their tour was and everything else. So that's what we're doing. We'll send you a copy of that. You can you can critique okay, it. Yeah, uh, I'd love to see that. Yeah. So um, we it didn't do as much with the band itself. Now after this, we'll do more of the band thing. So I guess my question, since I have you on, um, it it does uh, there is a discussion like about a battle of bands, but there really is no mechanic except for. Um, you know, if Josie and the Pussycats, their overall success score, which is an average of the bandmate success, rolls, you know, under and the other group doesn't, they win the Battle of the Bands. I'm just kind of paraphrasing. Did you have some more thought about, you know, doing Battles of the Bands and writing that as rules in there? Because I would think a lot of the, you know, in order to keep it away from the, you know, Gonzo shooting everything up or Call mm-hmm. of Cthulhu, you know, you, you do the Josie and the Pussycats where maybe uh, the singer gets disappears and they try to find the singer, but then they're running up to the stage last moment and they're you know, playing the, the Battle of the Bands. Is there any kind of thought you had with kind of fleshing out that aspect of it? And, and if you did, I missed it in the, in the book. Okay. Um, well, uh, actually, I really hadn't thought about that. Um, well, there you go. You can start working on that for us. We would, 
We'd love to uh, get you. We can have you, you know, uh, our friend Rob, he's run Smoldering Done Games. Our, he's a publisher. He'll, he'll, he'll help you. Nowadays, it's easy to be a publisher. Everyone can be a publisher. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. Well, in your spare time, you know, if you want to think about that. But go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. It's just we're always excited oh, okay. to, just, to help. No, that, that, yeah, that's, that's fine. I, I didn't have anything more on that. Yeah, but you can um, see where that would be kind of, I mean, Am I right? That's basically the rules as written that you each band has a success score and you can adjust it, and then whoever wins, obviously, then that would be the battle of the bands, kind of. Right. Yeah. That. Yeah. That sounds like it would work well. I context. Yeah. It's just what I'm. Uh, it's the the thing is how how do you make that more dramatic than just two roles? I'm just using that as an example. Like there's three. Yeah. There's three. And they have three roles. Okay, and you know, unless you're going to have them role play, and then the the mm-hmm. is going to role play the other band, um, you know. And and one of the things we did, so I just kind of give you a spoiler alert for those who are going to GrogCon and play in my adventure. Do not listen to the next part because there's a spoiler. Um, they find half of a hit song. I'll just leave it that way. They don't have the other half. It's in the rooms. That it's somewhere, but they can't find it. In fact, I purposely made it very hard to find so that the group would have to write the second verse before they went live because uh, the adventure is about uh, Don Kirshner is coming to the high school they're playing at. You oh, okay. You remember Don Kirshner, right? Oh, yes. Right. So uh, the, the, uh, his, his niece is the vice president of student body affairs. So she convinces Don, who's in town, to come by and see this band. Um, And so they've got this hit song, but they only have half of it. And so it makes the party have to come up with the second verse on the spot, which was a lot of fun to do that. Oh, cool. um, And, you know, uh, there's more to it, but I'm trying to make it more dramatic than just... All right, you guys roll into your success. One person rolls. You guys roll. You know, I roll for the the other group, and you know, you you basically kind of. So it would be interesting to see if there was some kind of challenge mechanic that it takes three rolls or a series of tests. You know, three songs. I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking at spitballing here. I know we didn't talk about this beforehand, but I was just curious if you had any thoughts about that. Um, yeah. And- I have to think about it. Okay, no, that's great. Yeah, let, you got our email. I'd love to you to, because I intend to run this every year because we're going to do the pseudo undead. You know, it's this oh. year will be nineteen eighty. We lived forty years ago. It's, for us, it's nineteen eighty two. So next okay. year will be nineteen eighty three, and they'll be on the next tour, and I'll oh. write an adventure for that. So if you could come up with some, you know, quick email, what your thoughts are? We'd love to. You know, it's always nice to have the author. The you know you are the Gary Gygax of this uh, of this adventures of this this game so it's always nice to get from the horse's mouth what uh, you think about it. Okay. Um, so uh, so with that um, you know again any other thoughts any other things so after Rockstar did you continue writing things or uh, with regards to gaming or role playing? Um. Oh, well, I. I... Kind of roll, I kept rolling for a while after that, but uh, the, the old group kind of broke up. Yeah, and things got a little complicated. I I, uh, I got got in a folk band for a while. Oh wow! Okay, 
um, and played some rendezvous where they would everyone would dress like colonial gear and everything. Mm. I played with that for a few years, and then uh, just unfortunately, uh, like I said, things kind of drifted away until uh, when I um, found out. Uh, let's see, I'm trying to think of it. Con. I remember it was when Dungeon concert coming into Indianapolis. And at one point I was contacted again by, oh, I can't remember, it was by from Chaosium, wondering what I was up to. And so um, I ended up doing a couple of some of their monographs. Okay. Um, ones that they were doing the little publishing on the side, you know, just, just a, you know, cheap paper and stuff, but it was yeah, a complete adventure. So I, I ended up publishing. Uh, it's on my Cthulhu, a couple of my Cthulhu adventures for that, including a, one about the return of the Ripper, and did a, a supplement of, of rules and ideas that come up. Uh, so that that was uh, that, and then like I said, I was going to Gen Con, and I was running uh, different uh, Call of Cthulhu and Rockstar adventures. Most of it. Um, I think uh, I, I had one that was uh, took place on Mars. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, incorporate cool. Incorporate the tripods. Just kind of taking Call of Cthulhu into the future a bit. Um, and then there was one. I, one I'd always uh, a matchup I'd always wish to see was Cthulhu versus Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a whole adventure on that. Oh, that's amazing! Cthulhu versus Cthulhu versus Godzilla. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> so uh, I did that, and uh, last convention I went to was. 2008. Um, I had lost my job right before that, mm. and then the money started running low, and then I heard, uh, had an illness come up, and so it's kind of been, you know, after, I finally, I tried getting other jobs, but my illness kind of kept me from it. Sure. So I finally just retired. Yeah. So now I'm retired on Social Security. Well, I really appreciate your time, and thank you again for taking time today and about great work you've done. You know, it's, it's still evergreen. Would you have thought, what, 30-something years after, people are still playing it? That, that, that to me, is always, amazing. That's always a question I ask. When you wrote this, you know, whether it's uh, Space GURPS or Gaslight Hulu, do you think that it's amazing that decade? Did you think at the time that these pe people are going to be playing this decades later? Oh, yeah, I had no idea. Yeah. I figured it'd be eventually passed for the next big thing. So, well, um, Cthulhu's still going strong. People love that, and uh, mm -hmm. we're going to do our best, you know, Bill, to you know sell 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 these uh, sell this game because it's it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's, um, okay, it's it's okay. it's you know, again, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't plan to do a full tour uh, with this. You know, our audience is not massive, but we uh, right. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. So. Uh, I appreciate your time today. Could you do you have a D six around your near you? Uh actually nowhere close. Okay. Unfortunately. No, it's okay. It's okay. So we I forgot to ask send that to you because what we usually do is we ask our guests to roll a D six to figure out how well the show went. Or usually it's a D ten, but in honor of <laughs> So You Want to Be a Rockstar, we're doing a D six because that's what the game is. So I will roll the D six for you. So hopefully okay. hopefully it'll go well. I rolled a three, so that's average. It's average. Okay, yeah. average. Yeah. Oh, I can live with that. Right, I can live with that as well. So, um, again, thank you for your time today. 
And uh, if folks want to contact Bill, if they're running the game and have any questions, I can send you an email forward from them. Is that, is that okay to do? Okay. Yes, sure. That'd be fine. All right. Great. So for Grog Talk, I'm James. And again, thank you, Bill, for your time today. And we'll see you next time on Grog Talk. Take care. You take care, too. This is Bill, a Bushy Puppy production. All rights reserved.